0: Welcome to the Dinner
1: party download. This is your
0: icebreaker. Here's a joke. What's the difference between a bowl of chili and a urologist? One is hot and spicy, and the other analyzes urine.
2: Hi, I'm Rico Galliano. I'm Brendan Francis Nunom and from APM, American Public Media. This is the dinner party download the culture show that helps you win your week's dinner parties.
1: You just got a kind of non-joke joke from Gabriel Roth, author of the brand new actual novel, The Unknowns. That'll help break the ice. We'll hear more from Gabriel later. Plus, we will speak with filmmaker Andrew Bajowski, director of the new movie Computer Chess.
2: Also coming up, the great-great-grandchildren of Emily Post answer your etiquette questions, Tony Award-winning actress Andrea Martin gets carjacked, and we meet the new
1: herring. Because the old herring was just Squaresville, you guys. So passe. But first, As at any dinner party, we start with small talk. All week long, you've been hearing these
2: headlines. Leader of the notorious Zeta's drug cartel is now in the custody of Mexican authorities.
3: Gay marriage is now legal in Britain.
4: Nominations for the 65th Primetime Emmy Awards are out with the first ever online contenders.
2: Now for something you haven't heard, we are joined by Rehan Harmanci. She's the senior editor of Modern Farmer, a food and culture magazine. Rehan, what story are you going to be talking about this weekend?
5: Well, apparently the powers that be in the U.S. Congress um, are trying to put a national park on the
1: moon. Whoa. That'll be a fun summer vacation. Yes. (laughs) (laughs) That's awesome. Is there hiking? Are there hiking trails? Not
5: yet. Although I can see a high line kind of situation going there,
1: <laughs> a la Manhattan. I can I, I can picture that Mel Brooks
2: Winnebago in space from Spaceballs. Oh yeah, actually oh,
5: that would be nice. So wait,
1: so what is this thing? I'm...
5: Right. So so this is a bill that will go through Congress called the Apollo Lunar Landing Legacy Act, and basically the goal of the bill is to preserve some of the stuff we've left on the moon.
1: Oh, by making that area
2: a park. Okay. The like the instruments we used when we visited Yeah,
5: there's there's some stuff on the moon. There's moon buggies, there's golf balls, crash landing gear. So I believe there's a plaque.
1: That's great. But he, now here's my question though. My understanding is that we signed a, a treaty with other countries, didn't we, that we can't just kind of claim the moon as our property?
5: Indeed. Indeed, there's the United Nations 1967 Outer Space Treaty which prohibits any country from claiming property or i guess real estate in outer space
1: wow tell that to richard branson <laughs> that's right he's he's <laughs> already broken ground on his lunar fencing arena
2: <laughs> but also treaty shmidi i mean there may be uh other jurisdictions outside of our universe that have laid claim to this very moon oh man that
5: is a fair point
2: the martians <laughs> they're coming that
5: is very fair. they may want our golf balls and, <laughs> and moon buggies
2: all right ray Han thanks for the small talk
5: thank you guys
1: and now time for cocktails once again, we tell you something that happened in history, then give you a fitting drink to serve along with it. It's like history is a waterfall, but instead of water, it spills down cool, clear gin or something. Mm. Yeah. <laughs> Into a plunge pool of tonic. Delicious. With a lime raft.
2: First, the history part. This week, back in 1935, America unleashed a horrifying invention upon the world.
1: Michelle Philippi tells the terrible tale.
4: You can blame Oklahoma City, Oklahoma for the parking meter. More specifically, you can blame Oklahoma City's Carl C. McGee. Back in 1933, the town's Chamber of Commerce appointed Carl to the Traffic Committee. His task? To figure out why shoppers could never find a place to park their cars downtown. Carl studied the area and realized the problem wasn't too many cars. It was that most parked cars never moved. Downtown workers would drive in early and take up 80% of the parking spaces. All day long. Two years later, Carl had invented a solution a little timer on a pole beside each space. Drivers dropped in a nickel and got up to an hour of parking, after which they had to move or pay a fine. In the dead of night, on July 16, 1935, workers planted the first crop of Carl's parkometers. Soon they were spreading like weeds.
5: In many cities throughout the country, the newest thing for downtown parking is this automatic collector of external revenue, the five-cent parking machine.
4: Drivers hated parking meters immediately. Some filed lawsuits calling them a form of illegal taxation. And it didn't help when the first parking ticket was placed on a preacher's car while he was in a store getting coins to feed the meter. The judge dismissed that ticket, but meters themselves were ruled perfectly legal. Today, there are 4.5 million of them in the U.S. alone, and parking is a $30 billion a year industry.
1: So that's the history. Now for the drink to serve along with it. I am speaking with Mo Hanuni at the Skirvin Hotel Bar in Oklahoma City, Oklahoma. And Mo, you heard the history. What drink does it inspire you to make?
5: The drink that inspired me to make, the name of it is going to be the Meter Walk.
1: The Meter Walk. That's right. And why is that?
5: It gets really cold here in the winter, so you have to walk outside to your car, feed the meter every hour. So you have to make a lot of trips, you know, all day. It sucks. <laughs>
1: <laughs> and it gets really cold in Oklahoma? I didn't know that.
5: It gets really cold, yeah. And it actually snows just about every year.
1: It's so bad that you're actually thinking about it even in the middle of summer.
5: <laughs> <laughs> I can't forget the winter. Every hour I have to go outside, yeah. Right. This is a drink to go outside and feed the mirror and come back, and you'll be good.
1: So this is a drink to keep you warm? Yep. We can put it on file and use it later. What? How do you make this thing?
5: Just put a uh, half an ounce of... Ice cream, half an ounce of Goetzlager, which is a cinnamon liqueur, and a half an ounce of Rumplemint. It's a mint liqueur. Rumplemint. Mm-hmm.
1: That's the whole thing. Pretty much, yeah. Just a shot. I mean, it Keeps you warm. Although I feel like to to make it absolutely perfect, it should cost a nickel. Right. And the hangover should kick in exactly an hour later. <laughs>
2: So Rico, it's interesting. Yeah. Just the other day I visited the Hall of Inventors who should have never been allowed to invent. Really? Yeah. I
1: didn't know about that place. And
2: there's a big statue of Carl C. McGee out front. Of course. Yeah. There is. And this year they're going to induct the guy who invented Internet Spam and ATM fees.
1: Fun. And the ceremonies yeah. in Oklahoma in winter, I heard. You
2: heard you heard right.
1: Uh, folks, you can find our cocktail recipes all the year round. They're at dinnerpartydownload.org. It's a ride.
2: And now, The Guest List, in which an interesting person lists some interesting things.
1: And today, our guest is author Gabriel Roth. His first novel, The Unknowns, just came out. The New York Times called it a, quote, remarkably funny, tender book and a sparkling debut. Here's Gabriel to tell us about it
0: and some other sparkling debuts. Hi, I'm Gabriel Roth, and my first novel is The Unknowns. It's the story of a computer programmer named Eric Muller, who's very good with computers and not very good with social interactions. He makes a lot of money in the internet boom and then sets out to figure out the girlfriend problem. Because this is my first novel, I'm here with a list of my favorite debuts in various forms. Number one is The Mysteries of Pittsburgh, the first novel by Michael Chabon. The story of a young man graduating from college who finds himself involved in both a bisexual love triangle and also his father's crime ring. Came out in 1988. He began writing it when he was 21 years old and it was published when he was 24 and it's pretty clearly the work of a young genius showing off. He's using these crazy words, this colorful language, but it's also exuberantly plotted and the characters are are beautifully drawn. And there's something about showing off when it's done at such a high level, it's no longer annoying and it becomes just impressive. So the next debut is all over the place, the 1984 first album by the California rock group, The Bangles. Most people usually think of the Bangles from either their big hits Walk Like an Egyptian and Manic Monday. You realize when you hear this first album is that they began as a really tight power pop four piece with beautifully arranged guitars and harmony singing. It's hard to choose a favorite song because it's one of those albums where uh, every cut is a winner. But um, if I had to pick one, it would be Dover Beach. It really captures the feeling when you're young and in love and innocent and yet the pressures of the world are upon you. That album was the sound of love to me. Okay, that's a little much, but it's certainly the sound of teenage love to me. The next debut I'm gonna talk about is the first issue of the New York Review of Books. It was published in 1963, and it's probably the best first issue of any magazine ever. There was a, a printer strike that had shut down the New York Times and the other New York area newspapers, and so books weren't getting reviewed. And Barbara Epstein and Robert Silvers decided they would publish their own standalone book review magazine and they asked their friends to contribute and for that first issue they were able to round up essays by Dwight Macdonald, Mary McCarthy, Susan Sontag, Gore Vidal, William Styron, W.H. Auden, and Adrian Rich, and then just to spice it up they threw in some poems by Robert Lowell, Elizabeth Hardwick, John Berryman, and Robert Penn Warren. That's a pretty good lineup. You can still read it now, it's on the New York Review website in its entirety, and just as a piece of Mid-century New York literary culture—it's unparalleled. Last but not least, we're going to go with the first movie. It's the first movie by director Cameron Crowe, and it's *Say Anything*. For those of you, perhaps uh, you are seven or eight years old, it's the story of Lloyd Dobler, high school graduate, who is in love with the beautiful academic genius Diane Court, and. I remember very clearly when I saw that film how John Cusack's portrayal of Lloyd Dobler gave me a model of masculinity uh, that I had never had before. It was a way of being a man without being on the one hand uh, an ass, and on the other hand being a wimp. It's a guy who is true to his convictions, who has a, a, a strength of character.
6: What are your plans for the future?
2: You mean a like career? I don't know.
6: i <clears throat> I thought about this quite a bit, sir, and I I would have to say, considering what's waiting out there for me, I don't want to sell anything, buy anything, or process anything as a career. I don't want to sell anything bought or processed, or buy anything sold or processed, or process anything sold, bought, or processed.
0: But who's fundamentally basically a kind person and a nice guy who cares about other uh, people and who loves a girl and wants her to love him back.
2: I don't know, I can't figure it all out tonight, sir, I'm just going to hang with your daughter.
0: I have always wanted to meet John Cusack and tell him what a big deal he was to me, but I'm sure he gets stopped every time he goes out to the deli and some uh, 40-year-old man tells him, you know, your portrayal of Lloyd Dobler really instructed me on how to become a man. And he's probably tired of it by now. The guest list from
1: author Gabriel Roth. His new book is called The Unknowns. He's on book tour now. Check out dinnerpartydownload.org for details. And that's where you'll also find a link to that
2: incredible first issue of the New York Review of Books, which we encourage you to read while listening to the Bangles' first album. Just
1: trust us. Yeah, it's like Dark Side of the Moon and The Wizard of Oz. They just fit. Yeah. Trippy. Hand in glove. That's not true. Folks, we are going to take a break. Coming up, we find a non-red herring and then...
7: Eat it like a seal.
1: That and more when The Dinner
2: Party Download continues.
1: Welcome back to The Dinner Party Download, the culture show that helps you win your dinner party. I'm Rico Galliano. I'm Brendan Francis Noonan. Later, Broadway star Andrea Martin teaches us the best
2: possible way to have your car stolen. And I learn how to eat like a seal. At last. But first, it's time to meet our guest of honor.
1: Yes, and this week it's filmmaker Andrew Bajowski, His first movie the micro-budget indie comedy Funny Haha ha was called by New York Times critic A.O. Scott one of the ten most influential movies of the 2000s. It defined the indie genre known as mumblecore, and it's kind of a...
2: <laughs> Are you
1: demonstrating mumblecore dialogue right now?
2: It's like, you know, it's That's perfect. I practiced
1: a lot when I was a teenager. Great. And in addition to low production values, these movies usually feature young characters in modern settings, But Andrew's new movie, Computer Chess, is set in the 1980s. It is about engineers competing to create the first computer program that can beat a human in chess. When I sat down with Andrew at this year's South by Southwest Film Fest, I asked him what inspired the topic.
3: It's so hard to reconstruct how this movie came about. And it's a funny thing now to see how people are responding to it. It's very exciting because I think people do seem engaged and, and interested in what we're doing. But... It hadn't occurred to me until we did it that people love their computers and want to see a movie about their computers, um, and that everybody you know remembers their childhood computers. It's like I've made a movie about people's you know teddy bear. Did you expect to be making a nostalgia movie? It doesn't feel like it's a nostalgia movie. No, I, to some extent, a lot that stuff is all still present in my mind. I mean, I, I I remember being a kid and I remember those computers, and and not so much nostalgically, but just the feelings and questions that went with them about what are these computers going to do to our lives even though we've gotten very accustomed to our computers and we're not afraid of them the way that maybe we used to be, you know, there's no reason we shouldn't be afraid. I mean, the, the questions were never really answered, particularly about what, what they're doing to us. And those questions, I think, still very much resonate. I have to,
1: I actually have to say, to me, the movie's a comedy, but by the end of it, there's a melancholy to it almost. It feels like you're, you're documenting the moment where we kind of give our humanity over to technology. First of all, do you think that's accurate?
3: You know, I don't think it's a done deal. <laughs> I think I think some of our humanity is still with us. Um, and that was probably written in the, I mean, you know, maybe you would have said the same thing about the invention of the wheel. I mean, I think that's kind of part of the human story in a way is that we, we are always attracted to these things which are, seem to chip away at our soul. And yet it's, I mean, one thing that I felt like I learned making this movie, I went into it as an outsider, not a computer programmer, not uh, I'm a terrible chess player. So I came to it largely as a, as a skeptic about artificial intelligence. At least that you know, there's a part of me that thought, and still, on some level, thinks, why are we teaching a machine to play chess? I, I thought chess was supposed to be you know a fun game. Yeah. You and me sit down and and we enjoy playing each other. Why do I need to program something to demolish me at it?
1: Yeah, why are we programming ourselves out of the equation?
3: And yet, the more time I spent learning a little bit about it and learning a little bit about the people who who did this and, then, and also working with a lot of my cast is real computer programmers, I came to have a real not just respect but also affection for these guys, particularly the early... I mean, today, computer guys today, of course, there are a lot of... Good-looking, fit, well-dressed computer people who fit into society just fine. But uh, I think in those days, the, the serious people, the people who were at the forefront, were, in my mind, almost like monks. I mean, just this incredible dedication. Very fringe. Very French? Oh, fringe. <laughs> I didn't know that they are all that French. but Well, they have attitudes, some sure. of them. Yes, yes, yes. Yeah, very fringe. And, you know, it's just like any other human endeavor. I mean, it's like, why do you program a computer to dominate a chess? Why do you climb Mount Everest? Why do I keep making indie movies that, you know, society is not really asking for? You do it because you feel like you have to, or because you feel like there's something to that accomplishment. And that's a very, very human desire to conquer a task. And, and so that... Despite what it may wreak, Upon you, oh, absolutely. Every time, I think there's a cultural and a personal cost to all of these things. So so, yes, I mean, these guys, these computer geniuses who brought all this technology, I, I think a lot of them were quite philosophical and did think a lot about what these things meant. Nonetheless, obviously, computers have had great effects on our lives and also many unintended consequences. And there, you know, there are a lot of a lot of us, I think, you know, I can't believe when I die when I'm laying on my deathbed, if I think about the percentage of my life I'll have spent responding to emails, it will be very, very depressing.
1: You shot this movie on old black-and-white tube video cameras from the early 60s. The The image quality is very degraded and, and sort of primitive-looking. But I was thinking about it. It's not that much different than your previous films, all, all of which were also shot in an, what is now considered an old technology, 16-millimeter film. You take that and the sort of ambivalent feeling about technology that you sort of express in the movie, I feel in general that you're somebody who's resistant to technology. Do you think that's accurate?
3: Well, we were joking on this movie because I'd, got, you know, I'd been shooting on 16 millimeter film and now we're shooting on these video cameras. So basically I went from 1930s technology to 1960s technology. I'm, like, I'm slowly inching my way toward the 21st century. Uh, yeah, well, sure. Of course I have all kinds of ambivalence about technology. It's funny. I mean, I have a 2-year-old son and... If you put an iPhone or iPad in front of him, he's completely absorbed in it. He goes a a little bit insane. You cannot take it away from him. We were at dinner the other night, and a friend had a phone. Dessert came to the table, a big brownie with uh, chocolate syrup on it and and also a cherry cobbler with a a scoop of ice cream on it. And this is a two-year-old who could not have been less interested in the dessert because he had an iPhone in front of him. Oh, my God. And it was really scary. But I also remember, you know, when I got... I think I got a VIC-20 was the first personal computer I had when I was a kid. I mean, I remember staying up into the wee hours of the night just already. I mean, the technology has always, always been completely riveting to us. We've always been fascinated by it, even when it did things that by modern standards you would think of as incredibly boring and useless. And again, I got to imagine, you know, it's probably the same way for the caveman with the wheel or the fire. He probably just spent all
1: day rolling that wheel around because it blew his mind. And he was probably saying to his kids, I'm only going to let you play with the wheel for one hour a day or it's going to ruin you. Exactly. Exactly. I wanted to ask you a question we ask everyone on the show. If we were to meet you at a dinner party, what question would you least like to be asked? Like, what's the question that you're asked about too often or... I'm just not good. I'm a terrible self-promoter. And so... People say,
3: "Oh, you, you make movies. What's your movies about?" And I always say, "I don't know. If I could if I could describe it, then then I wouldn't have wasted all this time making it. I guess I, I I'm not, I can't do the elevator pitch. I get worse and worse at it every year.
1: I have I'm actually interested that you, you didn't choose asking you about the term mumblecore. I would think uh, that you would hate that term at this point.
3: I, that can that I, I'm less mumbly on it, if you will. I, 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 to, to me it's been so fascinating to see that word infuse the culture because this is a word that came from a joke that a sound mixer I work with, Eric Massanaga, who I love, who's a great guy. Made, he made this joke to me, and I repeated it to a journalist. I mean, this terrible error of repeating it to a journalist kind of also in the context of a joke. And then it caught on, but it's caught on hugely. I was in Berlin a month ago at the Berlin Film Festival, and I was talking to journalists from Poland and from Chile and from all over the world. There are literally millions of people on this planet who speak this word to each other, and it's amazing. I mean, in a way, as, as much as my films, I, I hope, are seen by lots of people and mean something to people, my having been present at the birth of that word is probably the most global, powerful thing I'll ever be a part of, even though I don't like the word or really understand it.
1: Andrew Bajowski's film Computer Chess opens this weekend in New York, then rolls out to other cities. And Brendan, you know, I remember my family's first computer. It was the second Apple Macintosh. Oh, yeah. No hard drive, and the floppy disks held a whopping 400K of information. <laughs> so basically, you know? it could store
2: maybe the intro of Stairway to Heaven yes. on MP3. <laughs> That's
1: right, and it but it had a calculator. Oh. <laughs>
8: to eavesdrop.
2: Andrea Martin was an original cast member on the influential sketch comedy show, SCTV. This year, she won a Tony for her role in the Broadway revival of Pippin. The cast album just came out. Today, we overhear her tell a dinner party-worthy tale.
6: Hi, I'm Andrea Martin, and I'm gonna read to you a story, an essay. The name of my story is Mustang Convertible. I'm happy to share it with you because I have never told this story to anyone. On an April morning in 1992, I had just returned home from a hike and had pulled up my car, a red Mustang convertible, while I listened to some pop song finish on the radio. Probably some depressing breakup song by, I don't know, Don Henley. It's about forgiveness, even if, even if you don't love me anymore. So it was probably that song that had me captivated because of my own recent depressing breakup from a boy much younger than I was. But anyway, that's not what this story's about. This story is about how entrenched I was in my own world that I didn't notice a car with two young men in it pull up a few feet in front of mine. I saw a well-dressed man, maybe 18, walking slowly toward me. His companion stood patiently next to their now parked car. Hi, I said, welcoming the young man to the neighborhood as he approached my open window. Hi, he said. I like your car. Aw, thank you, I said. I like it too. I really like your car, he continued. Well, thank you. That's so nice of you to say. I was about to tell him where I bought it and where he could get one too, when I sensed something was wrong. I started to close the window, and as I did, the man pulled out a gun. Get out of the car, he said. What, I said, get out of the car now. Wait a minute, I was trying to make sense of it. Weren't we just engaged in a lovely conversation about my beautiful red Mustang and how we were both so fond of it? He held the gun to my head. At that point, I opened the door and then I noticed my Starbucks coffee on the dashboard. Um, excuse me, please, can can I have my coffee? I asked the young man. I I just don't want it to spill all over my leather seats. I just had them polished at the Palisades' car wash. He got in the driver's seat and obeyingly handed me my coffee. Um, excuse me, and would you mind uh, giving me my purse? He handed me my purse. Someone had taught this boy manners. I ran into my house. I called the police. They arrived a few minutes later. I repeated the entire story to them. They said I was lucky I had not been shot. Never, ever engage in conversation with a person with a gun, the officer instructed. You're lucky to be alive. After my Mustang was stolen, I settled into being a responsible mom with a practical car. The days of driving up the coast of Malibu in my sexy red convertible, those beautiful little escapades were over. I live in New York now. I no longer own a car. When I visit my sons in LA, I have to rent one. And I always rent a convertible. I load the boys in the rented, roofless car. The boys now are in their 30s and we drive up the coast laughing and singing and having a glorious, windblown time. In fact, no matter what's going on in my life or theirs, the convertible has always provided us with an instant bond and a miraculous distraction. I'm lucky to be alive.
2: Andrea Martin reading from her forthcoming memoir. You can catch her on Broadway now in Pippin, and you are listening, possibly in a car, which you should keep locked, to the Dinner Party Download from American Public Media.
1: And now it's time for the main course, the part of the show where we talk about food. So Rico, people in the Netherlands really like herring. That is true. I've seen the herring stands. They're all over the place in Amsterdam.
2: Yeah, yeah. So you may have noticed that for the Dutch, it's not just food, but it's kind of a national treasure. Mm. And every year around this time, the new herring catch comes in and the whole country takes the day
1: off. Which explains their love of herring, I suppose. (laughs) They
2: get a vacation day. But here in the States, Russ and Daughters, the famous appetizer store in Manhattan, is ground zero for Dutch herring mania. People line up around the block when the New Catch arrives. To find out why, I met with one of the store's owners, Nikki Russ Fetterman, and I asked her what makes New Catch Holland herring so special.
7: It's a young herring, and this time of year it hits its peak omega-3 fat content, which is about, uh, normally it's about 16%... Omega three. Uh, this year, it's 18 percent, so it's kind of a record high. And what that means as a food, what, does, what, what is, that translates into is this piece of buttery, delicious, gastronomic heaven. So
2: is that so? Is that what you're looking for in a herring? That's what distinguishes one type of herring from another. Is the fat content?
7: Well, there are all different kinds of herrings. Uh, and all different herring preparations. If you look at our uh, herring showcase, you'll see about 10 different kinds of herrings from pickled herrings, smoked herrings, uh, herrings uh, marinated in cranberry clove sauce or curry, a mustard and dill. We have German roll mops, a, a Bismarck style herring. And the Holland herring, which is Different from all of those because it's basically a unadulterated herring. It's
2: not pickled. It's not It's not seasoned in any way.
7: Think of this uh, as the sushi version of herring.
2: And how did the Holland herring of all these different herrings, we have French herring and Swedish herring, how did this one become the one that we eat sushi style?
7: Well, this particular herring just lends itself so beautifully to just being enjoyed as is. Um, in Holland, uh, this uh, the, the catch for this herring is... A source of national pride. It's actually a national holiday when the the first uh, fish come into port. Uh, so it's a really big deal. Um, in Holland, you'll see the equivalent of a, a, a hot dog cart in New York. You'd see a, a herring push cart in Holland, where you, people eat these these herrings on the street. And my family's been importing these herrings for uh, over ten years now. And every year, we've just seen an increase in
2: Herring enthusiasm—it's
7: herring madness.
2: So, had they been doing this in Holland for a while? This isn't like one of those bougelay things where the the herring association decided they were gonna throw a party.
7: Right. This is not a uh, a marketing uh, ploy. This has been going on for hundreds and hundreds of years. And herring actually is historically. A fish that has been so critical to so many countries, wars have been fought over herring. Uh, So when you, I think part of the intensity of feeling people have around herring, this very humble fish, is partly that when you eat a herring, you're eating foods that, you know, that our ancestors have eaten.
2: I'm guessing the herring, due to its size, is lower on the food chain, so that means it's there's, it's more plentiful than other fish.
7: It, it, it's more plentiful. It's also because it's a small fish. It's uh, it's high in omega threes, but low, very low in mercury. We have customers here who are literally in their hundreds, and if you ask them what they attribute their longevity to, they will say eating herring.
2: Can I try that? Can I? Can we? Yeah, you know? let's do
7: it. Actually, I um, this time of year I try to eat at least one of these herring a day. So you came just in time for
2: your herring feeding. It is. All right, so we're looking at two herring. They're about, what, five, six, five inches, six inches, six inches long, delivered next to a side of minced onions. So is there any, do I need to know any, is there any particular wrist action? I yeah,
7: the most traditional way to eat this herring is almost as if you were a seal, just by taking the, the the tail. We have two fillets of herring that are attached at the tail, the little tailbone, and you just take that tail and you lift the herring up over your head and you, you know, tilt your head back and you just eat it Um, like a seal. I'll demonstrate for you. How about that? All right. The onions are optional. It's it's delicious as is. So you can kind of fold the wax paper and just to stick the onions onto one side of the herring. And then you take it by the tail, lift it up.
2: And you're just snapping at it like as if you were a (laughs) seal. Yeah. (laughs) So I'm going to fold my fish with my onion and kind of... It's like a make the first step of making a paper airplane. And so now the onions have stuck to it. How do we know the onions aren't gonna fall down? They might. Okay. Wow. It's delicious. It's really, really good. It just disappears. Man. And it's not as I mean, I've had herring before, but it's not as fishy as like the roll tops or, or something like that.
7: The roll mops.
2: Sorry, the roll mops, yeah. <laughs>
7: No, not at all. And actually, for whatever reason, herring has gotten a bad rap and people have sort of misconceptions or, you know, they're sort of primed not to like it. So we kind of have to open them up and and when people then taste it, they just are blown away.
2: Although herring bone has always been very popular in both tweed jackets and in tile now, I find more.
7: Um, So herring is making a comeback in design and fashion and
9: food.
3: So,
2: Rico, I should point out that seals have flippers, which are cool, but they're not hands. That's true. So to really eat herring like a seal, you would have to slurp it off a table (laughs) or have someone throw it into your mouth.
1: Which I'd be happy to do, but it would be unbecoming.
2: Yeah, and at like $4 a fish, possibly wasteful.
1: And messy. Uh, All right, (laughs) folks, coming up, Emily Post's great-great-grandchildren teach us some manners when the Dinner Party Download continues. Welcome back to the Dinner Party Download, the show that gives you an edge in your weekend conversations. I'm Rico Galliano.
2: I'm Brendan Francis Noonan. Coming up, we'll hear a new tune from the band Savoir D'Or, and in a few minutes, filmmaker Gabriella Cowperthwaite teaches us about whales that aren't whales,
4: mysterious
2: and potentially dangerous. Mm. But first, it's time to learn some manners.
1: Yes, each week you send us your questions about matters of etiquette. Sometimes we pose them to a celebrity, but if you are lucky, we pose them to a couple of folks who can actually help you. That would be Lizzie Post and Daniel Post-Senning. They are the great, great grandkids of Emily Post herself. They also help run the Emily Post Institute in Vermont, and they are co-authors of Emily Post's Etiquette, the 18th edition. Welcome back, you guys. Oh, it's
10: so good to be back.
1: Gentlemen, it is our pleasure. Feels like a long time.
10: Has anything
2: rude happened to you this summer? Um. <laughs> Apparently ooh. not. It doesn't
1: stop raining. I fell off a horse
10: on vacation. Mm-hmm. It's kind of rude.
1: Well, listen. I have. I actually have an etiquette question for you. The, we didn't get to have you on before the Fourth of July, mm. but I wanted to ask you a hypothetical July Fourth etiquette question that definitely is not a personal issue for me at all. Say it several days after the actual holiday, and your neighbors across the street keep setting off fireworks in the middle of the night, <laughs> so you wake up thinking you're in a war zone. <laughs> That's bad etiquette, right?
10: Yeah. I. We, we'll, we're going to add that one on page four hundred fifteen.
1: <laughs> Seriously, guys, you're setting off bombs in the middle of the night. Well, what are you supposed to do with fireworks?
9: You have them. They're supposed to be lit. On July 7th? You have to use your leftovers. No. Yeah. Wait, wait, wait for the solstice. Save them. They don't go bad. All right, let's go to our
1: actual etiquette questions from listeners.
2: Uh, this one comes from Liz in Bethesda, Maryland. Liz writes, if you're riding shotgun on a car trip, are you obligated to entertain the driver, or are you allowed to tweet Facebook or whatever? Mm-hmm. Whatever is pretty broad, but... Yeah. I was driving someone around recently and he started watching videos on his phone and singing along. I just got my first smartphone and frankly have no idea if he was being rude or resourceful.
10: You know, I actually, I remember going out with a guy once who was checking his email while I was driving us to where we were going and I was kind of just, Wow, this is a lot of fun, you know. It, <laughs> you're a keeper. Yeah, right. But I do. I think that you're with the people that you're with. You're in a, a small space together. I think it's important to pay attention to them and talk with them. That sort of thing. Is
1: that? But is that specific to you know driving around? That seems like a rule that should apply to all society, right? If you're with somebody, be with them.
10: I think so. I mean, a little different when you're in the waiting room and they're strangers, but For yeah, sure. when you're with friends and you're going to do something together, I think, yeah, if they're sitting there responding to every little thing that comes in. Or I think in her example, too, she was talking about how he was like watching stuff on YouTube. Yeah. It's one thing if you're watching it and sharing it with everybody. But if you do
1: that while someone's driving, then you yeah, crash. And that's yeah. pretty impolite.
10: <laughs>
2: I'm going to think of one broad exception here. I'm guessing that if I was a parent, I'd be totally OK with my child not communicating with me if I was on a long trip you <laughs> that's know? true kind of zone out don't kill your sibling
10: maybe we need to refine it to being you know on a short car trip you want to be engaged mm-hmm. with the person you're traveling with on a longer car trip intermittently you can you can go back and forth
1: there you go Liz all right here's something from Zigis in NYC Zigis writes if you're biking on a cross-country road trip through the south on a lot of road trip questions in the summer, what are your hygiene obligations before entering a restaurant slash store along the way? Hygiene obligations? Yes.
9: Oh,
2: that already sounds gross. Can I just
9: say hi to my parents who are out there on a long distance cross-country road bike trip at the moment. That's very nice. <laughs> very much facing this question every day. So what? So what's going on? I mean, Please make this not gross. Please. Indeed. <laughs> Stores, hit and run. D- do what you need to do and get out as quick as possible. Restaurants show a little bit more concern and discretion. Catch a Hygienist. shower when you can. Use some deodorant, get into the public restrooms if possible, freshen up, and stay mm. out of the nicer places if you're not presentable.
2: I just pictured for some reason a peloton of bikers and, and they're passing people and instead of handing out bananas, they're handing out deodorant.
9: <laughs> a what
2: of bikers? A peloton. What is that? Come on, that's a pack of bikers, like a little that, gaggle.
1: I thought it was a pod. I thought that's no, it's a a peloton. Oh man, we're going to have to go to the dictionary after this.
2: All right, this is public radio. We have them laying around everywhere. (laughs) All right, so here's a question. This one comes from Stephanie in Vermont, your neighbor. Stephanie writes, as a waitress, I am constantly being asked to divulge personal details of my life that go beyond questions of food and drink. Questions like, why am I waiting tables? Am I married? And my favorite, where do I live? I'm often squicked out by the questions. I've never seen the word squicked. We'll have to go to the dictionary for that as well.
9: (laughs) Sometimes squigged out?
2: I'm often squicked out by the questions. I know I have to be cordial to receive a tip, so I'll generally indulge them or make up some fantastic life story. Any alternative ideas of how to respond?
10: Oh, having been a waitress, I feel for Stephanie greatly. Mm. Personally, what I used to do, I loved the makeup fantastical stories answer. <laughs> yeah, Just that's because kind of fun. It's, it's fun, you're still entertaining them, but you do have to be careful about coming back with like a, a snarky or a snide comment. You're really great to be recognizing that you're in a position where these people are going to base their tip on their experience with you. What about
2: the flip side of this? I mean, I often ask questions of people serving me food or coffee. I, d- I don't ask them where they live, etc. But because I just don't want them to be
9: robots just feeding me. You know? I, yeah,
1: where's, the, where's the line? Where's the dividing line where you're going too far with your
9: questions? Well, I'll jump in with some general conversation yeah. guidelines that apply. What is it? Tier 1, small talk is safe. Sports, celebrity, the weather. Tier 2, uh, <laughs> sex, religion, politics. Be careful. And Tier 3 is personal, family and finance. Don't even go there. So where do you live? Oh. Way too personal Do you Who have are kids? you married to Who are your kids Way too personal
10: You have to remember Your server is doing their job They're not here As like an escort Or your dinner companion For the night right. They okay. have stuff to get back to
2: I do have a question That this is something I've always wondered Maybe okay. you guys have the answer
10: Yeah
2: When a server is giving you water In the middle of your meal I feel like at finer restaurants It's jarring when you thank them because they would just want to be, their goal is to be discreet. Yeah. But I still yeah. find it, I th- I get very uncomfortable not just at least acknowledging them,
9: saying thank you. Yeah, I'm with
10: you 100%. How do you play that?
9: The good eye contact to acknowledge the subtlety of their service. I, I think you're recognizing a subtle and important moment because you're right, yeah. that is an aspect of good service is that they almost disappear if they're really focused yeah. on it.
10: So respond so, with a subtle but still kind. You like
9: know. a dude nod? <laughs> just the quick
10: nod up thank you. That's
1: the sort of like tipping your head back real super fast. Hey, man yeah nice one
10: i saw you got my water thanks man yeah
1: (laughs) you
2: guys just solved a big life question for me thanks
10: i'm so glad we're here for you that's why we have you on (laughs) we're not even going to air
1: this by the way this is just for our benefit (laughs) here's our last question this is from sylvia via facebook we don't know where she lives she writes how do you suggest correcting someone's bad grammar or incorrect pronunciation of words or is it rude to do so and boy, we get this all the time. <laughs> yeah. So, what do you think? I'm curious. Well, I mean, we get the letters. We get the most often in public radio are people correcting our grammar because yeah. we are expected. Ah. We understand we're kind of expected to be the last <laughs> bastion of proper speech. And I
2: mispronounce almost everything. But I think it's situational. (laughs) If someone's telling a story, it's an important story and they say mispronounce Nietzsche or Nietzsche, you know. If you're going to correct them on that, it's almost like you're not even listening to the actual content.
10: I love, actually, I really love your answer right there, is that if it's going to interrupt the conversation or take away from what they're doing, I think... Or embarrass the person. Or embarrass them, which 99.9% of the time, you're about to embarrass someone if you do that, so just don't. Hmm. The way to deal with it, a friend who makes the constant mistake of, like, you know, misusing or Me, which that one cracks me up all the time. Wait until grammar becomes a topic. People say oh it right. drives me nuts when someone pronounces it this way. And that's a great time to be like you know what another one is? <laughs> yes. Yeah. You know see if someone will pick it up. But it's not your job to be the grammar police of the world. So put the badge away.
1: Hear that everybody? Mm-hmm. Well but I think <laughs> it would be okay though for somebody
9: to write us a letter right? Well mm.
10: that's you guys are public figures and mm-hmm. I can't Sometimes say this. I'd
9: want to know if I'm saying something that makes me sound like I don't know what I'm talking about. Of course. It's nice if should, someone... should we give them
10: the one we go for at the office all the time? <laughs> Dan has a tendency. To use like as filler space. So he well, asked like, me to call him on it and I do. That
1: comes up a lot on our show and oh. it's like pretty hard <laughs> to stop saying like actually.
2: Yeah, but Rico, basically it ain't a big deal. We just yeah. learned. So it ain't no um, big deal, Brendan. Lizzie and Dan, you have been so
1: good to us.
10: Hey, Dan and me are so happy to be here as always.
1: Lizzie Post and Daniel post sending. They are co-authors of Emily Post Etiquette, the 18th edition. And Brendan, you were correct. A pack of bicyclists is called a Peloton. Right? Yeah. I'm so sorry. where did
2: you get Velopod? That I, sounds like a Luke Skywalker vehicle I or know, something. <laughs>
1: I swear I saw it years ago in an article in Outside Magazine. And uh-huh. I actually even looked up the piece on their website. And suspiciously, I must tell you, the text of it is missing because they obviously want to erase all evidence of how they misled me. Hmm. Well, ladies
2: and gentlemen, if you need guidance and say how to apologize to your co-hosts or to Outside Magazine when you find out you're just remembering their article wrong... I'm telling you. ...head to dinnerpartydownload.org and click Contact.
1: And now... Time for Chattering Class. This is when we are schooled by an expert in some fascinating topic. The topic this week, we warn you, can be upsetting at times, but it is definitely worth talking about. Killer whales and their captivity in amusement parks like SeaWorld. And our teacher is Gabriella Cowperthwaite. Her new movie made quite an impact at Sundance. It's called Blackfish, and it explores the issue in the wake of the tragedy in which a SeaWorld trainer was killed by a whale. And Gabriella, welcome.
8: Thank you for having me.
1: I kind of want to start with the really fascinating trivia about these animals. Mm -hmm. When you were researching killer whales, what was the most interesting thing to you that kind of leapt out at you?
8: Oh, wow. There were so many things. I think the first one was the brain. They did an MRI scan, basically, and looked at a killer whale brain. They have everything that we have in our brain but then they have a part that we don't have. We've never seen it before. And
1: in the movie, the inference that is made is that they seem to almost have more highly developed emotions.
8: Right. It's, it's, It's located in a place where it kind of suggests that it contributes to the emotional life somehow. We can't really know. We can't kind of put it into terms that make sense to us. But a lot of people say that that's why maybe they act in unison a lot.
1: They're very social creatures. And then you show there's footage of three whales overturning an ice floe on, which is a seal that they want to eat.
8: In unison. That's right. And they
1: do it. It's almost like they have been trained, but it's in the wild.
8: That's exactly right. It's pretty mind boggling.
1: Where did they get the name killer whales? That one guy says that there's never been a recorded instance of a whale killing anybody in the wild. That's right. Where did that name come from?
8: It's actually everyone thinks it's because they're whales that are killers. They're not whales. They're actually large dolphins. Hmm. Killer whales came from the fact that they actually kill whales and eat them.
1: So not killers of humans, killers of whales.
8: That's exactly right.
1: A mis- an unfortunate name for a fairly gentle creature, yes.
8: Fairly gentle, but you know that also is the side that we like. You know, that, that's convenient, I think, for us to remember, is that you know they're, they're emotional and they're lovely and they sort of reach out and bond. But of course, they are the top, top predator out there. They take down great white sharks. They are killers. Wow. I mean, they're predators. Both of those kind of need to be brought into, I think, the way we imagine these animals.
1: Well, let's talk about the film. You, you actually focus on one specific whale named Tilikum. And you kind of follow this one whale's life from the 70s, I believe, up until the moment where Tilikum killed his trainer.
8: Um, you know, when I read the news stories about it, you know, I'm a mom who took her kids to SeaWorld. So mm-hmm. when I was, you know, thinking that I was going to make this documentary, I was terrified of him. I didn't really have empathy. I feel sort of bad saying that, but I didn't. I was terrified of him. And so I sort of felt in order for me to make sense of him, I had to go back to his capture and uh, just kind of follow through maybe what he might have gone through.
1: And the narrative is basically that this was an animal that was kind of mistreated and may have been made into a bad guy by us.
8: That might be, yeah, that might be the inference there.
1: So you make that argument that captivity damages these whales and makes them unsafe to work with but sea world is conspicuously absent from this you've tried to get them to be part of the movie and Mm -hmm. they would not be as a journalist without that opposing point of view i kind of raised the bar as far as the burden of proof on you i'm wondering how you made the decision to sort of proceed with making the film despite that
8: um i was incredibly disappointed it was about a six month period where i was trying to get them to be interviewed and i thought i had a chance because maybe i'm naive But, you know, I thought just being someone who has no history of sort of animal activism, none of my films reflect that point of view at all. I thought I had a chance. But to be perfectly honest, when I started peeling back the onion, what I was learning, I guess I could see why they wouldn't. It would immediately put them on the defensive. I understood that. I also knew that, look, they've they've had the floor for 40 years. They've kind of controlled the messaging. They're in the media a lot. They've gotten their words out there. I felt sort of okay. Finally,
1: Well, to play devil's advocate and probably to ask the question that I think folks who haven't seen the movie would ask, horrible tragedy, right. but SeaWorld's been around for decades and decades and decades. How many deaths have there actually been? Doesn't that actually show that they're doing something right safety-wise?
8: Yeah, no, it's a it's a good question because you, you have to think about, well, there have only been four deaths, you know, related to killer whales, in marine parks. But once you see the close calls, the injuries people who who were injured and sort of took leave you start thinking about this whole thing differently like isn't this an accident waiting to happen furthermore I think you know when you look at the consequences of these deaths to um, those families and that these are you know this you know I hate to say this part but this was not these were not short deaths you know no. these are prolonged and, and fairly torturous um, So when the consequences are sort of that bad, the probability in and of itself becomes kind of irrelevant.
1: It's interesting, though, because you mentioned earlier you're not a longtime animal activist. What drew you to this as a topic?
8: Yeah, I just was sort of obsessed by this story because in my mind, I thought killer whales were our friends. Hmm. Like I thought we're sort of in tandem here in life, sure. you know, and that we realize that they're our friends and um, We have the they're stuffed capa-
1: animals. Kids sleep with That's stuffed animals. Right.
8: We know they're capable of doing this, but they choose us, you know, over the great white shark. You know what I mean? <laughs> For whatever reason, I thought we would never come to harm.
1: I'm assuming, by the way, during the making of the film that you actually had close interactions with killer whales. What do you remember taking away from those interactions? They
8: are... Um, they're massive. Um, it's weird because I was used to maybe my Sea World experiences in that the whale comes up to the glass sometimes, maybe might take note of you a little bit. So in the wild, you almost want that to happen. Like, wait, I'm here. Like, I love you. You know, you're so cool. And they're just kind of, they just kind of swim by. I don't you know, <laughs> they really. We are the, probably the least interesting of all the stimulus they're confronted with. We're probably the least interesting.
1: Gabriella Cowperthwaite, Her movie Blackfish opens this weekend in New York and L.A. and rolls out to other cities throughout the summer. And that's the Dinner Party download for this week. Till next time, you can keep up
2: with us on Facebook and on Twitter. Our handle is DinnerPartyDNLD.
1: Jackson Musker is our assistant producer. Our interns are James Delahousie, Davy Kim, and Brittany Martin. Peter Clowney is our executive producer. Engineering help came from Ravi Carmen and Jeff Peters. And now, before we leave you, it's time for One for the Road, a song to listen to on your way to or returning from this week's dinner parties.
2: Brooklyn pop rock duo Savoir Adore recently signed to a new label and re released Our Nature, their sophomore album. Here's a song from it called Dreamers.
1: Bon appétit. The dinner party download. I'm Brendan Francis Noonan. I'm Rico Galliano. Thanks for listening to our Waveland. Our what? What it means? Radio show? No, it doesn't. Damn that Outside Magazine.